Welcome to Should We, a conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Diana. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Diana. (laughs) Welcome, Jennifer. Maybe before we get started, I will tell our listeners a little bit about you. So right now you are a lead design researcher at Dropbox. Uh, I also read while snooping on the internet that you taught at the School of Visual Arts MFA program in interaction design. And before Dropbox, you were an independent design researcher for several years. And then before that, an information architect at the New York Times. And I first discovered your work through your writing for the manual, which is beautiful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our first question for you is, should we own things? Mm. This is a great question for me. <laughs> I'm in a moment in my life where I have a house for the first time in three years. Like, I, I'm renting, but I haven't had a permanent home in about three years. And my partner and I are, we don't know if we want to own furniture yet. So it's almost empty. And we're living in it and kind of having those conversations right now if we want to own stuff again. Because we went through a period in our life where we sold almost everything that we owned. Well, going down the buy everything route, own everything, (laughs) what would you do differently in owning things this time versus last time? The thing that I learned from having to go through the process of selling everything that I owned was that the things that were well-made and well-designed, we could actually resell very easily. I think this time around, we're, we're going to probably buy all used furniture. We probably won't buy anything new. We'll buy things assuming we won't own them again in a few years. Mm, impermanence. Assumed mm. impermanence. And have you done the troubleshooting of what if you didn't own anything? Like, how would you survive? Like, if we rented everything or if we just enjoyed spaciousness? <laughs> <laughs> Both of those sound like viable solutions. You tell me. It's a little bit of both. Like we furnished one room, but then we have rooms that are unfurnished. So there are rooms that are fully furnished and rooms that are mostly unfurnished. So we're living with that contradiction right now in the house that we're in. Which do you spend more time in? Hmm. We split our time between the furnished. curious about the not owning things time period. Mm. Like, what did you learn from that? How did it come about? Tell me about that time. Sure. So about three years ago, my partner had decided to leave his job. And he had been there for maybe seven or eight years. It was a, a pretty long job, and it was very intense. It was kind of a sudden decision. And it happened in the summer. And I was already independent at the time. It happened very quickly. It was a very flash decision. We were in this apartment, you know, beautiful Brooklyn apartment. We had, like, all the things. We had the life. And in a moment, we just decided that we didn't want that life anymore. And so we came back and we sold everything. We got out of our lease and we booked a ticket to Shanghai. We did keep a few things. It's not like we are this breed of extreme minimalist where we only have 100 things. That's not 
not us. We kept some books and personal things, and I have a lot of journals and sketchbooks, so I had all of those. And we put them in storage, and then we left. And about three months later, when I when we came back to New York, I ended up getting a studio, an art studio. And then that became kind of a de facto place for the things that we did have. And we had that until the summer when we left New York and moved. I, I became resistant to owning anything. So anything that I would buy, there was an intense process around, like, is this something that will really serve me? And how long will it serve me for? And is it something that I need? It sounds like you were practicing the KonMari method pre-Marie Kondo. How did you know? <laughs> uh, KonMari method is one of those ultra-validating books. <laughs> you know, you read it and you're like, I feel, I get, like, I feel gotten. <laughs> this is the life-changing magic of tidying up the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, I have been feeling lately like I'm due for a KonMari cleanse, but only based on what we've accumulated in the 10 months since moving back to the States. (laughs) Diana, but you've just been nesting and it's so cozy in your apartment. It's real cozy, but there's also a lot of garbage, so... (laughs) (laughs) There are also things that we moved back from Berlin. I say we didn't bring anything, but we brought a lot of things. And mainly they're like a, a full box of electrical cords. Wait, American electrical cords that you took a to Berlin? A mix. I would say a mix of American and German electrical cords and implements. So, yeah, I think that was all about optionality. Like, who knows what future we might have. But now I know what future we have, and it's the present. So I think we can get rid of some stuff. <laughs> If it makes you feel better, I also saved a box of electrical cords. <laughs> They're just so annoying to buy. You know, once you have them, you might as well milk them. Well, I'm noticing now that I think all three of us have experienced enormous moves and also times in our lives where we decided or couldn't bring everything with us where we had to live with very few possessions. Mm. And the temperaments that cause us to frame that as a positive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, to me, like the time we lived in Berlin was when we had very little and we didn't know how long we'd be there. So we accumulated very little besides a refrigerator and a couch. It felt so free. Mm. Like we could do another move at the drop of a hat, which we had to do. But also now I've really nested and I like it. I like having my things. This leads us to another question. Should we move across the country? (laughs) Uh, Only if someone else is going to take care of it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Good point. (laughs) Now that sounds like a hard one conclusion. (laughs) Have you done it both ways or only the no, one way? No, this is my first. Mm. But I have no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's easier to move across the country when you don't have anything to begin with. Mm, so true. Are you still in corporate housing or are you already settled no, in? No, I I have a cottage. Uh, whoa. So next level. How did you decide cottage versus apartment? Well, we the decision-making process was really around our commute. Like, I was optimizing. We were both optimizing for joyful commute 
and feeling a sense of aliveness. So really the only place that made sense for us to live was Alameda. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, Alameda is completely flat. So you can ride bicycles and rollerblades and not put yourself at risk. The entire island is 25 miles an hour, so you can also ride scooters and feel pretty safe. So my commute is riding my Vespa to the ferry and then taking the ferry to the Embarcadero and then walking to work. What? And it is, yeah, we should we should dig into this because it is not as efficient way of getting to work, but I choose less efficiency in favor of feeling alive. And what are the components that cause you to feel alive? Well, so I live in this cottage now that was a, it was a, we decided to live in a cottage after we decided to live in Alameda. I wake up in the morning and I put my helmet on and I start up my Vespa and I drive about 10 minutes to the ferry and that alone, like, it, I love being on my Vespa. It's an amazing feeling. And then... The ferry, the ferry was just delightful. Like we knew, we knew that a ferry would be involved, but we it didn't ride the ferry until we actually made the decision to move. And the ferry, that particular ferry trip, is exceptionally beautiful because it goes down this corridor where you get to watch the container ships come in and out of port. I've never really been that close to a container ship before, but there are like these enormous beasts. And if you're lucky, you'll you'll arrive at the ferry and they'll be moving or kind of slowly coming in with the tugboats pulling them one way or the other. And then a surprise with the ferry is there's this little maroon coffee truck. It's the get-go's coffee truck. Uh, Saba and Jeff run it, and they are the most delightful people. They're not there every day, but if I arrive, I'll get a chai and then get in line and get on the ferry. And if the weather's beautiful, I'll sit outside. And it's just this feeling of connection to the natural world and to the outside that I think is difficult to get if you work in an office. Wow. Wow. Speaking of working (laughs) at an office, (laughs) our next question is, should we go in-house? You've been in-house and then not in-house and then in-house. What's it like making that transition? Um... I don't know if people should work in-house. And I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way for myself. I remember when I first started designing, a mentor put it that way, that it, that there are these big differences between working in-house or working at an agency or working for yourself. For myself, I want both, but at different times in my life, now feels like a great time for me to be working in-house, and I can't quite explain it. We've had this very erratic, irregular life the last... For me, it's been about four and a half years. That's what I've... I welcomed it. It's something I've been excited about, of having flexibility and to be able to travel and go to all the places that I've been and work on all the different kinds of projects I've worked on. And now I'm kind of interested in this different quality of feeling in my life that's a little bit more about focus and being centered and having rhythms and having routines. Are there any challenges you have faced in making that transition from being a little more of a wanderer or a traveler to being more in one place? Not yet. <laughs> well, it's still, in, in a way, I was thinking about it this morning, because in our, in our previous life, we would live in a city for 
one to three months. And so I've only been here two months, so it still feels like my other life. So I think it's a question that you might want to ask me again in maybe three or four more months. Very interesting. I'm also remembering another question related to the moving across the country. More specifically, should we move from New York slash everywhere to San Francisco Bay Area? And by we, we just mean you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I said, it's entirely possible that a lot of people don't know I moved here. (laughs) (laughs) They will now. But I don't know. I'm going back to New York in in a week. And I miss it. New York is its own universe, its own place. But there's also a little bit of anxiety, kind of like having to see an ex that you haven't seen in a few months. And you don't really know, like, what you're going to talk about or if it's going to be awkward. I have never lived in New York fully, although I did spend a summer there. And there have been periods of my life when I was going about once a month. And the two things that are strongest about New York to me are that walking down the street is a pleasure, Mm -hmm. even if it's kind of dirty, like it's very interesting. And uh, I experience it as a New York thing, whereas in San Francisco, I do not enjoy walking down the street. Um, So New York, when I think of being there, the feeling of it is always related to walking down the sidewalk. And then the other thing is that the city is a good place for neurotic people, and that is both a good and a bad thing. Um, (laughs) I feel the same way about Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, true. So true. Yeah, Cambridge is a great place for people who want to drive themselves into the ground with something that no one else will ever care about. (laughs) It it has been proven that New York is an epicenter for the neurotic personality type. Mm. Really, it's been so, studied. Fascinating. So when I was mm-hmm. there, I felt that. And I felt both normal, which was really pleasant, and reinforced, which was perhaps less healthy. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a comfortable place to be, but comfortable only because it makes my discomfort seem fine. <laughs> <laughs> I am very curious about your art studio, though. So this, of course, is a fantasy. Um, especially, I love the idea that the art studio became the home base, but then you were a world traveler. So... I don't even need you to tell us should we do that or not. I just want more illustrations so that, to fuel my fantasies. Oh, you should definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Check. Um, yeah, yeah. What was it like? Well, I inherited the studio from Paul Solelis, mm. who was there for several years before me. And the thing that was unique about the studio is the view was unparalleled. Because you could see the tip of Manhattan, from the tip of Manhattan all the way up to beyond the Queensboro Bridge. And so people would walk into the space, and the space is lovely. It was about 250 square feet, white walls. And then a few minutes in, if they had, they might not notice at first, and then they'd look out the window. And it, it's views like that are so rare in the city to find. I was in Long Island City, so I had this just gorgeous view of Manhattan. And I ended up doing everything there. I mean, we didn't sleep there, but um, working, making sketchbooks, doing both my artist practice and my research practice there. And it was very quiet. It was like a little epicenter of quiet in the city. And I, it, was, it was a struggle to give it up. I almost thought about um, 
subletting it and doing the whole thing that New Yorkers who leave New York do, which is they, like, hang on to their real estate, (laughs) 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 you know, continue to sublet for years and years and years with the fantasy that they might come back or occupy it again. I, I just want more and more detail about the artist studio. <laughs> like, like what, what types of art did you practice there? Yeah, so the thing that I've been doing the last three years, almost three years, is I've been collecting pigment from places that I travel. The, the studio almost became this archive or a museum of all these pigments that I've collected. And I have, haven't had a sketchbook practice for almost my whole life. And I started making sketchbooks when I was 19, hand-binding them. And it occurred to me recently that the pigments are potentially like just another aspect of that practice because over the last 15 or so years that I've been making books, I've slowly taught myself all the different aspects of book technology. So book binding, paper making, printing, to where the sketchbooks are almost entirely made from scratch. And then the pigments can become artist materials. So I would make crayons or watercolors. And, yeah. Dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so wonderful. And I love the way you describe it as sort of a consistent practice over time with different elements kind of growing it in different ways. And I imagine you still have the practice, right? I do, and I, I think I have a fraught relationship to my artist practice. I think I always have. It's more of an inner practice than it is an, something that I do to publish or put on exhibition. I think books themselves are these very intimate pieces, and so they require a viewer and, and a pair of hands in order to interact with. I have always thought about books as a kind of early interaction design. And so I love the intimacy of them. And they're also, when they're closed, all that is sort of held in secret. So that those are all the things that attracted me to books to begin with and to wanting to make them. I sometimes get in moods where I'm, I don't want to make art. <laughs> or like, I don't, I don't I'm like, oh, I'm not going to make sketchbooks anymore. And then they kind of beckon me back. <laughs> How do they do it? Well, they're very seductive. <laughs> I'm in a moment right now where I'm not sure if I'm going to make sketchbooks or what the next thing is that I'm going to do with my practice. I've been really into dancing and fantasizing about having resonant instruments in my house. Say more! (laughs) (laughs) What kinds of dancing? (laughs) What kinds of instruments? We need all the details. So I have a team, a really awesome small team of researchers, And we've started a silent disco practice, a three-song midday silent disco practice. And we've done it like three or four times already, and it will sort of organically erupt where one of us will say, you know, let's silent disco, and we'll each pick a song, and then we'll go up into this area of the building where we can pull a curtain, and we'll put on our headphones, and then we'll just dance what happens in silent disco stays in silent disco, so I can't tell you anything else. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Your team is the best team. Don't you just want to be on that team that Absolutely. does silent yeah. disco? Uh, when you spoke about the sketchbook practice building over many years, I was wondering, are there any practices that have spiked for you and then gone away never to return? I did take a pop and lock class in New York. 
<laughs> and I, I was so into it when I was into it, but then I didn't keep going with it. That's amazing. How did that come about? <laughs> she's, she's doing it. She's doing it right now. I, I'm in the same place in a lot of ways. It's just this desire to move my body. I never was a dancer. It was never a part of any practice growing up. I played soccer. I was, I, I did physical things as a kid, but I never danced. I never did gymnastics. And so I don't know where it comes from. I think it, it might just be that I'm a human being and I want to move. But it was the same impulse of like, oh, I'm in the city. I want to learn something specific to this place. And I love the way the human body looks when it is popping and locking. I think it's exceptional. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I had a small brief pop and lock practice. <laughs> It sounds like it still lives within you. It still lives inside of me. Yeah. We have another question for you. Uh, you can interpret it however you like. Should we do research? I'm going to interpret it as, should we search Google for answers that we have in our minds? Even though that's an, a ridiculous way to interpret that question. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to say no. Like, I've come to this moment in my life that when there's something I observe in the world that I'm curious about or if there's a question I have, I try to stay with it without immediately satisfying the urge to know. Oh, so so you mean like not consulting Wikipedia whenever you're curious about a fact or not asking Alexa anything that could pop into your mind? Exactly. Ooh, why? I think... Amazing things are born when you leave a lot of space for your imagination and for misinterpretation. This is a wonderful thing to hear from a researcher. <laughs> I think, is that me officially on the record saying no? <laughs> That's not how I interpret research either. You're saying that just brings me right back to my freshman year in college that was the point where I really discovered the internet as it is now in that way that it's always at your fingertips and you could always consult it for any question. So I remember a series of conversations where I'd ask a classmate like for a question, like, what's the address of the student mailing center? Or how do you do this or that? Or whatever. And they would be like, um, Google it. <laughs> and I had had dial-up internet at home. I mean, to me, getting on the internet and looking something up was an arduous task. It was more comfortable to just live with the discomfort of not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, you know, it requires willpower to not look it up. But I really, I really value that too. In other areas of life, ambiguity is, is inevitable. And I think building up that muscle of discomfort with it is very valuable. I love that. What about you, Diana? I look everything up, but I'm trying to figure <laughs> out whether I'm happy about that. <laughs> you know, when I was at Middlebury studying Russian for a summer, 
I was not supposed to use the English internet, but I had a lot of questions about what various words meant. And so when I would uh, when I would come home from class, I would have a list of words that I had phonetically spelled out, and I would go look those up. And it was kind of nice to just live with the placeholder until the end of the day mm. because nothing really bad happened, you know. And then I was able to learn in one chunk rather than uh, rather than splintering it. Uh, splintering it throughout the day. And, you know, that happens when I write as well. A lot of writers advocate for inserting a nonsense something that you can search for later, like TK, when you don't know what you're going to say or if you don't know the answer to a research question. And that is something I sometimes do and sometimes don't. Um, But certainly if I'm writing and then a question comes up and I'm like, I can't write this sentence until I know the answer, then I will get derailed. And I think it's nice to say, let's just assume what the answer is and flag the uncertainty. And that is a cool way to live. Have you ever forgotten about your TKs? (laughs) I'm not that good about them in the first place. So I think no. I also have a tendency to reread everything I've written already and meticulously edit it as a preamble to doing any additional writing. And sometimes the preamble is all that happens. I think that's all for now. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So wonderful to talk with you. And welcome to San Francisco slash Alameda. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We have some other people to thank. We would like to thank our Kickstarter backers, of whom Jennifer is one. Thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) Full (laughs) disclosure. For making this season possible. Thank you to Yosh at Faultline Studios for our recording space and for editing this episode. Thank you to the band Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland. And thank you to Math Times Joy for our wonderful new identity. Should you tune in next time, we'll leave it to you.